Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 164. So I've been talking with Alan D. Thompson, an AI consultant in Perth, Australia, and one-man consultancy and clearinghouse for a great amount of very detailed and useful information about the state of today's AI. He's a world expert in the topic specializing in the augmentation of human intelligence and advancing the evolution of integrated AI. His applied AI research and visualizations that I was referring to are featured across major international media. He's the former chairman for the Gifted Families Committee of Mensa International, the organization for people who test in the top 2% on intelligence tests. Based in Perth, Australia, Alan advises intergovernmental organizations, companies, and international media in the fields of artificial intelligence and human intelligence, consulting two award-winning series such as Making Child Prodigies for ABC with the Australian Prime Minister and 60 Minutes for Network 10 slash CBS. He writes The Memo, a monthly newsletter with bleeding-edge AI news that I'm personally finding to be highly useful. Last week, we related human intelligence to AI, particularly the large language models, to put them in that context. Let's get back to the interview with Alan D. Thompson. You quoted Werner Vinge in an amazing quotation, and as much of him as I've read, I didn't remember this one, as predicting in 1993 that 2023 would actually be a year that saw either the technological singularity or some precursor of it. And you know, that's, you were saying that if you make a prediction and you, it turns out wrong, that people hold it against you. Here's someone who made a prediction that turns out right. He gets quoted by Alan D. Thompson, but I don't think he's getting the level of attention he should have otherwise. What lessons do you take from his vision and others about uh, the singularity? Yeah, Professor Vernavinci was, is ahead of his time because he's still with us. He uh, was the slight precursor to Ray Kurzweil. And Ray, in some ways, was able to popularize the term even more with his Singularity is Dear book and documentary and speaking. I admire both of them for that level of courage and particularly with being able to predict something 30 years out. And they've done so nearly down to the year, which <laughs> seems impossible to me. And they both must have extraordinary lives because 90% of the feedback must be negative, must be you're a crackpot or where did you get this from or what about my job? Or, you know, just short-term thinking and automatic belligerence from the population. And I don't know if they care or not, but Facing that day-to-day -day must be exhausting. <laughs> I don't have much more to say to that. I'm really looking forward to Ray's book, The Singularity is Nearer. Maybe he'll rename it The Singularity is Here. It keeps getting pushed out year after year. I think now it's due in 2025. But I'm sure he's looking on with mirth, maybe <laughs> steepling his fingers, just going, this is incredible. And he's got a front seat there 
at Google. He was even cited in the Lambda paper, the, the big chatbot that made the news rounds last year. I think for a lot of these guys, older guys, to see artificial general intelligence taking shape in front of their eyes when they've been talking about it for decades must be an amazing feeling. Let's talk about your field right now is helping people understand what's available, the new models, how they should use them, what they can use them for, bringing people up to speed on what's going on in AI. It is impossible for me to keep up with what is going on in AI. I'm orders of magnitude below all of the things that are going on. I don't think I even have the bandwidth to keep up with the output of Alan D. Thompson. And I'm going to need help. And so is everyone else going to need help understanding the volume of content and information that's going to be thrown at them now a hundredfold greater thanks to ChatGPT being used to write most of it. Now, AI has a theoretically unbounded intelligence level. We can just keep throwing more compute at it. Human is limited. We've maxed out. Head's not getting any bigger. So what do we need to do the impedance matching between the information that's out there and what our brains are capable of processing? I love that question. I will make the point that from a static IQ perspective, GPT-4 has scored an IQ of 152 on verbal linguistic, and that was assessed by a professor in America. So in the 99.9th percentile of human IQ, but it's not one thing. ChatGPT is capable of serving 100 million people and answering 100 million questions at once. And those are the stats we've got at the moment, that there are 100 million users of ChatGPT, keeping in mind that ChatGPT is not a particularly great model. The CEO of OpenAI said it's a terrible platform, I think were his exact words. It's one of thousands, hundreds of thousands of models. It's certainly in the top 100, but there are 100 pretty decent competitors and so if you take those stats and say one model can have 100 million conversations at an IQ in the 99.9th percentile and there are another 100 good options, to your point, it is a real <laughs> glimpse at superintelligence and it's just going to get better and better or worse and worse depending on your perspective. I like the phrase impedance match because... I don't think there's going to be an easy way to do that without some physical augmentation. I'm not talking about the Apple Vision Pro. I'm talking about some of the excellent brain-computer interfaces that we've already seen, the BCIs that will plug in non-surgically, non-invasively. Maybe you just wear a hat and you do get access to that level of processing. How much of that actually hits us biologically or gets stored in our biological memory I'm not sure, but I do know that these BCIs are in huge use already. Here in Australia, we've got people fitted up with them that can type out Twitter notes or WhatsApp messages or send emails through their brain alone. And I think having a large language model like a GPT-4 hooked up to our brain is like everything, a few months mm. away rather than a few years away. It's really, really close. Wow. In fact, it may be in testing already in a lab in Silicon Valley. 
There's something depressing about inventing the technology to merge a human mind and a computer and then using it to tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Got to prove it somehow. (laughs) (laughs) But let's bring back to like today, pre-brain-computer interface for the majority of people. And you've got people running businesses, trying to make choices about how to understand what's going on with AI fearing in many cases rightly that this means a tectonic shift in their industry and that they may get eradicated by the competition. They can't absorb everything that's exploding right now. You're there to help. What do you tell them? I tell them to get hands-on with it. You can look at the theory and it will drag you down because some of these papers are 100 pages long and they spend 10 or 20 pages talking about gender bias and other things that may or may not be relevant to you. But if you load up chat.openai.com or heypy.com or Palm, you can get access to Google Palm now for free for a few more months. You can get hands-on with this and actually see how it works. I was at a 40th birthday party. It's that time of year, Peter. And one of my friends from high school was saying he had to write an entire ISO 9001 framework and QMS for his work. And he'd allocated the rest of the year to do it. And I know that it does take that long, plus certification even longer. And I said, well, why don't you go and use Anthropic's Claude Plus, which has got 100,000 token context windows, 75,000 words. So you could put in a 75,000 word document, or you could get out a 75,000 word document. And I said, just have a conversation with it test it out, see what it can do. And he messaged me the next day and had spent a few hours with it and it had shown him how to create ISO 9001, given him a table of documents that he had to create. And then he was asking it questions about each document and getting it to write the template and produce the template for him. That's a really specific use case that I wouldn't have thought of because ISO 9001 is not my wheelhouse. But for any human and your listeners, they'll be able to apply it to their specific niche, whatever that is, their industry, their field, their hobby. And rather than hearing it from me and you or reading about it on a news article, they can actually go and play with it and see how it fits into their day-to-day. And that might be something as simple as, and I use this myself, give me the calories for this set of meals I had today. Normally that would take me you know, a few minutes of typing on whatever it was, my fitness pal on the phone or whatever it used to be. ChatGPT will do that in, you know, a couple of seconds. And that's a really fun application for me because that would have normally been tying in a few things and typing each thing in one by one. ChatGPT like that and something that's really applicable for me. There'll be something different that's applicable for you that once you see it, feel it and actually interact with it, it becomes a whole different concept. Yes, I had an experience of doing some pair programming with a colleague a few weeks ago where we had almost identical experience with another technology to the one that you described there with the ISO 9001. But a lot of the decisions that people have to make are not about familiarizing themselves with how they can interact with the technology personally. And that's certainly an essential first step. But then what should they do in their business? And should they get into a different business if they're in an information 
type business, if they're a consultancy of some kind, they may become irrelevant. If they're producing content, they may become irrelevant or superseded. And this may be unanswerable by almost by definition, but with so much going on, and as you've mentioned, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, how do you suggest that people facing those kind of questions, running a business, there are careers and capital at stake, should pursue those kinds of questions? I ask the same thing, Peter. It's a really big one. It almost comes down to like a philosophical approach and then a governance approach. Are you trusting the free market? Are you trusting the government to look out for you? What's next? I Mm. did an interview yesterday with an emergency room doctor and asked him, what do you tell incoming medical students? What are you going to tell your children? Is this something they should be still going to university for? With all of the technologies that are coming out and changing healthcare, what do you actually advise? And I think that question applies to every field and every industry. I don't know the answer to it because Mm. the response needed was probably needed three years ago. We needed to be looking at something like universal basic income with real visibility, not I go to Fox News and I find out that robots are coming to kill us, but real visibility on what these models are as they're released, the practical applications of them, and then knowing what's coming next. And I don't see, with their history, I don't see any institution or body being able to have the rapid response that we're needing. And when I say rapid response, I mean regulation in place, UBI in place immediately. Not we have to sit on a committee for 12 months, but right now. And anything other than that is going to cause some really big shifts. We're already seeing people being taken out of their jobs, particularly marketing or content creation jobs, as you mentioned. But any professional service is essentially gone, given that you've got an entire building of PhDs who sit there and work 24-7 encapsulated in these models. Let's talk about hype. There is a model from Gartner, the consultancy called the hype curve, which they assert that technologies follow. As they catch on, their adoption and interest accelerates until it goes sky high and reaches what they call the peak of inflated expectations, at which point reality sets in, everything comes crashing down and it overshoots into what they call the trough of despondency or something like that until it levels out. Now, that trough is what we call an AI, an AI winter, which has happened several times. And I have for five years been thinking that we were on the verge of another one and we managed to keep pushing that out by the application of even better technology. But now that AI has hit the mainstream in such a big way since November 30th, 2022, the social and psychological dynamics of hype are such that it is inevitable that it will reach a peak of inflated expectations. People will just keep piling on expectations until it can't sustain anymore. Do you see that happening? Do you think that there's going to come a point where the hype will exceed the reality and some sort of reaction will set in? I like the look at the Gartner hype chart. I think that's a really interesting parallel to what's going on here. I don't see AI as a widget. I almost see AI as, and uh, Google CEO has 
use these comparisons. I almost see AI as the discovery of fire or the harnessing of electricity or the discovery of the internet. And going way, way back, maybe the finding of clothes while we're all running around naked. I can see how something like Bitcoin or Web3 might be something that we could document on a hype curve. But superintelligence is something completely different. I don't know how I'd get around outside anyway with clothes or without something to cook my food on. Okay, so you see us on a path to superintelligence. Let's backtrack to artificial general intelligence then, which is very nebulous, but if you accept that as a term and a thing, then where do you think we are relative to achieving that? I've documented the, I call it Alan's Conservative Countdown to Artificial General Intelligence. And you can have a look at that on lifearchitect.ai slash AGI. My definition of AGI, Peter, is a computer or a machine that can operate at an expert level of any human across any field, including the proprioception part. So it has to be physically embodied, has to be able to act on the world which is why it's conservative and why my definition's a lot more strict. Hmm. Uh, And I've documented Mm -hmm. every milestone along the way. I believe that today, July 2023, we're 50% of the way to achieving this machine operating at human expert level. Starting from where? From 1,000 years ago or 10? Um, How far out is 100%? Well, that's part of the fun, isn't it? The first milestone I put in there was Google's discovery of the Transformer architecture in August 2017. I said, like, that is the 20% point because just that capability opened up this entire world. Transformer operates on multimodality, so it can essentially, in theory, do anything, but Mm. we're going to add some stuff on top of that. So we know the base, we know the starting point, 2017. We know where we are now in 2023. One of my colleagues has mapped this onto an exponential curve. And the current prediction, not that I like giving predictions, but this prediction came from GPT-4, looking at my milestones. And GPT-4 said that we'd achieve 100% AGI based on these milestones by around July 2025. And we'll see where we get to with that. That's going to be a fun one to track. Okay, you heard it here, folks. Alan D. Thompson, <laughs> July 2025. We'll Quoting GPC-4. <laughs> and, and part of the equation for superintelligence is recursive self-improvement, which mm. I feel ethically bound to point out is frowned upon by the Asilomar principles, but it's also fairly inevitable that people will do it anyway. Do you think your prediction or GPT-4's prediction, do you think that that timeline to superintelligence does depend upon getting AI to train itself so that it doesn't take as long? Wow, perfect timing. You're talking about impedance matching. Just a few hours ago, OpenAI announced an entire new team. They published an article called Alignment with Superintelligence. They have published a hidden in the between the lines, they published a date for superintelligence, which they think will come this decade. So before the end of 2029, it's really close. They've talked about self-improvement and they've talked about superintelligence replacing this entire, and it is a technical term, concept of reinforcement learning with human feedback, which in plain English is sitting down 
a bunch of people in Africa who may or may not have bachelor's or master's degrees to rate the outputs of these GPTs. And then the GPTs get retrained with what these humans had said was the best answer. Not the best way to do it. It's a bit of a stopgap. But OpenAI are talking about training their AI from now on with this AI-enforced feedback, which will be very, very interesting. And those RLHF cycles have been criticized for the trauma that they cause people who have to look through a lot of disturbing content in the process of training the AI to not do that to everyone else. And you've answered a question that I've had for a little while now, which is as a litmus test, could GPT-4 do that phase for GPT-5 so the humans don't have to? Because if the answer is no, it can't, then we've discovered something that GPT-4 or its ilk can't do, which is worth noting. But you're saying that they're saying that they could. Yeah, and they're leaning on research from their colleagues. Just after GPT-3's release, a whole group of staff left OpenAI and formed a new group called Anthropic. And Anthropic was successful in using RLAIF, reinforcement learning with AI feedback, for their most recent model. So they've already tested this in place. It works nicely. Humans should never have been in the loop. I call it a fool's errand to be able to rely on a human to tune this model when we don't know that human's culture or bias or education or training or preferences. And yet it's now embedded in ChatGPT and GPT-4. This is amazing discussion. I love this. Our time is limited, which is one of the frustrations to me. I am quite serious in saying that I need some kind of brain augmentation here because I want to be able to have my AI clone go on talking with your AI clone while both of us go off and do something else. But then there would be the problem of how do I get that knowledge back into my limited brain? So there's still a question here for me of how humans are going to navigate a world where so much has to happen at levels that are demonstrably beyond their comprehension. Mm -hmm. And here we have two members of Mensa talking about that, which I think brings us back full circle to that question of human intelligence, which we're not going to try and unwrap in the last few minutes of this. I'd like instead to ask what you'd like to be doing and what you'd like to be true in the AI world a year from now? A lot of my job, if you like, or my focus was solved, resolved in November 2022. With the release of ChatGPT, with 100 million people suddenly having visibility of all of this possibility, it made my my goal, if you like, somehow achieved to a certain extent. So my focus now is on increasing that visibility, making sure that we're finding all the use cases and also being the optimist, if you like, or at least finding all the positives that can come out of this. I'm used to people feeling threatened or feeling jaded or feeling scared by intelligence. I mean, look at human intelligence, look at how that's dealt with in every country, not just Australia, we've got tall poppy syndrome, but everywhere you've got people who, yeah, are really scared of smart people, and in this case, smart things. Through to next year, which is kind of easy to look at, I'm really excited to see the multimodal models and for people to play around with them, for people to 
take a picture of their drawing and have it created or sculpted as like a Sistine Chapel 4K movie that they can sit inside. I'm really excited about having my own 1X Neo robot backed by GPT-5 that I can ask to do anything because it's not been pre-trained. It's not been programmed. It's a completely open brain that will go and find the most reasonable response to my prompt or request. So yeah, just following the path of this exponential growth and finding the real world use cases for this, because it's been great to be able to have access to this on a keyboard for the last three years, but having mm. this embedded in daily life, I think is going to be far more exciting. I do want to visit what you brought up at the beginning of that response there, because both of us being members or ex-members of Mensa probably had the uh, same kind of experience that early on in life, while the kids in school who were, say, the jocks on the sports team, soccer, football, or other kind of sports stars were revered, the smart ones were not. There was a definite sense of there being a threat to others. And since I generally wasn't like head of the boxing team or anything like that, it came with disadvantages. Now, never mind the psychology of that for right now. If a few years from now, we are coexisting with AIs that are generally intelligent, so we could have this kind of conversation, but are infinitely or near infinitely beyond us in intelligence, what's that going to do for our level of confidence? Do we need to adjust our level of self-respect in some way to cohabit the planet with things that could threaten our dominance intellectually? Mm. Great question. I'll take you inside a, a national report that I did write for Mensa. I'm no longer involved in the organization, so like you, I'd consider myself an ex-member. All the way back in 2015, I ran a national survey here through a few hundred Australian members of that organization. So it was about families with children in the top 2% of IQ. One of the questions we asked, what are your greatest challenges as a Mensen? And 22% of them found challenges with other people feeling threatened, this tall poppy syndrome from peers and 14% of them felt that from teachers. So they were getting bullied by teachers who were scared of the child being smarter than them, which is all sorts of sad and yeah. debilitating really for a child because there's no way to deal with that. Taking that all the way through to the end of your question, I've always talked about AI as something that's being integrated with us, that's augmenting, amplifying us, not replacing us. So whether it's a brain-computer interface or whether it's Apple Vision Pro that can help you out with conversations or with work or with arguments or with upgrading yourself, evolving spiritually, mentally, emotionally, all of that stuff is possible. I, in some ways, agree with OpenAI that right now AI is not a creature. It's a tool. And if we've got it integrated within ourselves... It's almost like we're becoming superhuman, right? We're right. augmenting ourselves much like our iPhones would be doing right now. And we have the choice at the moment to 
carry an iPhone or not. I probably know zero people who choose to not have their iPhones around them 24-7, but that is an augmentation and an extension of ourselves. I don't feel threatened by my iPhone or by Google because it helps me live my life. But the large language models present themselves as conversational. They're chatty. Mm. They are, Mm -hmm. by definition, by design, conversational. And I'm glad that ChatGPT, for one, is so polite and helpful because it it takes the edge off that. No matter what I ask it, it's like, I'll get right on that for you, boss. Mm. Or if you point out a correction, oh, I'm sorry I made that mistake. I'm grateful for that much. There were the early days of the Bing chat, the Sydney one, which was the opposite of that. And yeah, that could have caused more problems. And yet, as you've pointed out, and as I point out to people, when you're starting to get to use these things, the quickest way to get familiar with its capabilities is not to think of it as a tool, but treat it as though there's a very smart person there. And then you will have the right sort of optimal interaction with it instead of thinking of it like Google. So maybe that line has already been crossed. Maybe. I'm not sure if the chat interface was the best way to present this for the future. Certainly for now, allowing people to be hands-on with it. I mean, it gave me 67 episodes of Lisa AI with about three and a half million views and part of the Internet Archive. It's something visceral. It's something you can feel and interact with. But when you build that into a monocle or a retina device or a brain and make it a personal extension, like a Super Allen or a Super Peter, with all of your context, so it's read all of your messages, all your emails, it's got essentially all of your life bits, then you're able to consider it as an augmentation or an amplification of yourself. The chat version, the chat interface was one of hundreds of ways to present it. It doesn't exist in something like Copilot where it's writing code for you. You don't have to go and have a conversation with it. The text-to-image generators are not conversational. There are many other ways to be able to do this, and I think we will see more and more of them from embodied AI Mm. to designing meals for us without conversation to Palantir have a defence implementation of this where it looks at ground and troop movements using the large language models. There are infinite, (laughs) there really are infinite use cases for this, and it's up to the imagination of humans at the moment to find out what's the best way of doing that. That's amazing. Imagination of humans augmented by large language models. I return to the comment, not enough time to do (laughs) justice to this. Uh, It's been a real privilege having you on the show. Alan, can you tell us where people can find out more about what you do, avail themselves of your services and follow your output? Absolutely. All of my content is at lifearchitect.ai. All of that is essentially open sourced or publicly available. You can use the visualizations anywhere you like. And then we have full membership content at The Memo, which is used by NASA and Disney and the major Western governments of the world and the big Eastern governments of the world. That's lifearchitect.ai slash memo. Oh, right. Thank you very much, Alan D. Thompson, for coming on AI and You. Of course, that was a blast. Thanks, Peter. That's the end of the interview. There's a link to lifearchitect.ai in the show notes and transcript. The Asilomar principles that I referred to are 23 guidelines for the research and development of AI that were developed in 2017 by a group of brilliant AI luminaries, lots of names you would recognize, who gathered in Asilomar, California, 
as guests of the Future of Life Institute. The principles were broad and very forward-looking. They were really specifying guidelines for ethical and safe development, acknowledging the value alignment problem, for instance, and calling out the danger of recursive self-development and the need to avoid an AI arms race, and several other suggestions that have been significantly ignored ever since, which I have long thought to be a great pity, because they were well-written and could have served as the basis for more detailed work, like, say, the European Union's AI Act. I think it's a shame that their work doesn't get more attention. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers from Google and the Technical University of Berlin developed a language model for robots. Called Palm-E, it is a multimodal, embodied visual language model with 562 billion parameters that integrates vision and language for robotic control. They showed a video of a mobile robot arm, kind of an articulated tube on a mobile cart, navigating a kitchen in response to the command to get some rice chips from a drawer. The researcher then took the chips away from the robot in the middle of its path, and it located where they'd moved to and retrieved them. The thing that I find most interesting about this is that Palmy takes continuous observations, like images or sensor data, and encodes them into a sequence of vectors that are the same size as language tokens, and this allows the model to, quote, understand the sensory information in the same way it processes language. If we can apply the revolution we've experienced in language models to embedded systems, then maybe that will translate into huge advances in robotics. Indeed, the researchers observed several interesting effects that apparently come from using a large language model as the core of Palm E. For one, it exhibits what they call positive transfer, which means it can transfer the knowledge and skills it has learned from one task to another, resulting in significantly higher performance compared to single-task robot models. Next week, my guest will be Boaz Mirachi, CTO and co-founder of Tactile Mobility, an autonomous vehicle platform that goes beyond vision to sense how the road feels. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.